Hey y'all, this is Ben Burke. Um, I'm here with, for another episode of Prairie Fire with uh, Chicago Teachers Union Executive Board Member and Chicago DSA Former Executive Committee Member, Kenzo Shibata. Kenzo, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me on, Ben. Of course. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the history of you know moral panics and whatnot. But before we do that, I do want to talk to you a little bit about some headlines coming out of Chicago around the whole... Chicago Teachers Unions, there's rumor of a strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the so we we you know we just got out of a strike um, in the, for this past contract. Uh, so uh, late 2019, we went on an 11-day strike, and um, that uh, was really a strike that f- kind of fortified the troops, um, so to speak. In uh, in the Chicago Teachers Union, we hadn't been on strike for seven years at that point, and um, we were really kind of recommitted um, ourselves to like fighting for uh, the students and fighting for you know classroom uh, resources and safety. And uh, having this like continued conversation around safety has uh, really kind of transformed the way teachers look. You know, we look at ourselves, I'd say, in Chicago and, um, you know, we're the, the covid cases are getting worse and worse. We're at a, a higher rate right now than New York City. Um, our mayor is just bumbling uh, everything left and right. Um, she I mean, she, she can't take a win like she she's insisting that or for a long time. She was insisting that the Columbus statue stayed up, even though protesters were telling her to take it down. And now she's on, or she's been on this uh, forcing teachers back into the classroom on this hybrid model that makes absolutely no sense. It makes, uh, it doesn't make the lives easier for students, parents, or teachers because kids will be in kind of alternating days um, and they'll have some days at home, some days working online. And none of those, uh, none of the issues are addressed there whatsoever. Like, it doesn't alleviate uh, child care for parents. They still have to, like, find child care on, on days where they have to work. Um, the students are still exposed to each other and, and to the teachers and, and other staff. Um, and uh, there's no plan or resources around any of it. So um, every teacher I've been talking to... Um, we're just like, yeah, we're not going to do this. Like that's been, it was almost like a no brainer. Like we know how to strike. We're not going to go back into this. Uh, we now have had a few months of practice with distance learning. Um, we hate doing it, but we're going to do it for everyone's safety. And, um, so this, so today, uh, you know, it leaked that, uh, the CTU were looking at having an exec or a house of delegates meeting. So all of the representatives and all the schools would come together and discuss a plan for this. And um, then immediately a bunch of things leaked to the press about the Board of Ed now tomorrow saying we're going on all virtual learning. So tomorrow can be a big day. Um, think, I mean, I think this is the best possible outcome, um, not having to strike, but also not having to, um, you know, create these, like, these huge vectors, <laughs> um, which don't... Um, wouldn't stand the test of any of the other stay-at-home orders, like having having live school again. So it looks like we're going to have a W probably tomorrow. That is awesome to hear. Um, you know, I you mentioned Mayor Lightfoot. Um, I'm not a Chicagoan, mm-hmm. so I don't know much about, uh, you know, what, what her deal is. But I, if I recall correctly, she got pretty high up there in your worst mayor's competition, right? <laughs> she won. She won? Yeah. That's, that's a... Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, she won. <laughs> Uh, it was her and uh, Durkin from um, from Seattle, who she was not a favorite at first, it seemed, but uh, Seattle's become Seattle, you know, ground zero. Um, and we've seen exactly how awful and neoliberal she is. And, you know, firsthand we have, you know, Kashama Sawant there, one of our own, you know, socialist leaders um, battling her left and right. So um, that was... Uh, it, it wasn't close, though, when it got to the point of, of Lori, um, because uh, right around the time of the final vote, that was when she was um, really st- – she finally caved in on – or caved on uh, the Columbus statue. She said that, that she's temporarily taking him away, but – Perfect. I mean, she 
at least move you know she 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 changed you know a bit um and then uh so then that happened um and then and then she won the contest so um soon we're gonna do some sort of marathon streaming uh charity event for the chicago bond fund um on basically on her behalf good deal that sounds awesome um i will be sure to uh tune into that and tell my listeners to do the same um is there any way that uh, you know a listener of mine could support the uh you know chicago teachers union or any strike efforts or uh you know protest efforts up in chicago i would say right now um just follow things on social media um at the moment we might not have to do anything but um yeah, just keep an eye on, on social media, um, on the CTU's Twitter, which is CTU Local One dot or I'm sorry, it's uh, at CTU Local One, uh, number one, or or my, my Twitter address, um, and we'll keep you updated. Awesome. Well good deal. That sounds uh, sounds great. I will make sure my listeners hop on that. Um, so getting into the discussion about um, you know, history today, uh, when I reached out to you about uh, a topic for this episode, you wanted to talk about moral panics, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, that seems fitting right now. Um, so tell us, uh, what, what's got you interested in moral panics? It, well, this is, you know, it was one of the first, um, it was one of the first things that I got interested in politically because I was a, a little metalhead. And when the Parents Music Resource Center um, formed which was this uh group of um the wives of senators um and congressmen so like and both republicans and democrats so like uh, tipper gore was big on it uh jim baker's uh wife i forget her name um they were very prominent in that and um the parents music resource center um pushed for legislation to get records um well they want to initially have you know some music banned or censored but i think they landed on just having stickers put on them um which changed uh the way music had to be marketed like kids obviously really wanted the stickered records but then record stores would refuse to carry them and so it created the whole uh concept of like clean records or like you know editing records and um, for some some uh, people who at that time the, the internet didn't exist, like your local record store was where you bought your music, so they effectively were able to censor it, and it was around all this moral panic around um, uh, if if young people were exposed to not just me- heavy metal but like Prince and a lot of pop music, it's going to turn this that generation into you know deranged drug addict, um, you know cool people like <laughs> of course no but you know it it, it was gonna de- you know it was gonna degrade society essentially and um they used a lot of uh example so like one of the things about moral panics is it's all smoke for the most part and no fire so um there were all of these cases of um supposedly like mainly urban myth of, of like satanic rituals happening in forest preserves. And later uh, those rumors morphed into nursery schools. And um, this really impacted some people's lives. There was the McMartin uh, preschool trial, which was um, out in uh, near, near Los Angeles. It was a, a preschool where um there were uh, a few kids came forward and said, you know, abuse was taking place there. And then eventually it, it got to the point where um, it completely divided a community and all of these, like uh, these just really uh, inflated stories uh, about uh, satanic rituals um, and sexual abuse and physical abuse happening there. Um, of which there was there was no proof of, and later it was found that some of the psychologists that were working with the kids were planting these ideas in the kids' heads, and um, this was happening in multiple places, and it was like all the smoke around the uh, McMartin uh, scandal was spreading to other places, and then other people were coming up with this, and there was again there was no like real root cause. And then before you know it, people were suing, uh, like parents 
of uh, kids that committed suicide uh, sued Judas Priest. And Ozzy Osbourne was being sued. And um, there was no real material there. There was nothing um, steeped in the real world that should cause the kind of panic that it did. But everyone wanted to be on the right side. And that's kind of how moral panics work. It's, you know, it's um, this fear that there's like this evil seeping into society. And at least in the immediate, you have to, just to survive, you don't want to be ostracized. It's almost, think of it like a zombie movie. You're either a zombie or you're not a zombie in some ways. And a moral panic is, is very similar. Like, you want to be able to prove to everyone that you're not a zombie, that you're not one of the bad people. And um, I kind of, th- this idea started sparking when that letter came out, um, was in Harper's. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, the one that what Barry Weiss signed and um, uh, unfortunately, Noam Chomsky. Yeah, Chomsky did. Um, and like I, I just saw the the, the names, and the, the signatures on there, and and I'm just thinking so many. Probably everyone had a different concept of what the problem was when they put their name on this letter. Um, you know, like Barry Weiss and Noam Chomsky have very little in common um politically right um but you know they both seem to have this fear of um of this cancel culture so in in some ways like cancel culture is um in one form it's it creates this in-group out-group dynamic uh where like if you aren't sufficiently like you know um adhering to certain standards uh, of um of you know what the in-group is then you're you can be ostracized um but then there's other people that are sort of using that and trying to kind of invalidate everyone who's in there so it's like no matter what people are trying to cancel each other so to speak which is essentially just trying to ostracize people from and i guess in this in this space the left um and I think that we had these fissures for a very long time, and a lot of this has been kind of exploding with the uh, the end of the, the Bernie campaign. Like, we had this huge coalition of people with very disparate ideas, but we all had the common uh, vision of, like, supporting Bernie Sanders and being able to uh, accomplish our political goals through that. And um, now that we don't have a common project between the left and, you know, progressives even um i think that people are kind of in a panic and looking for the next thing to do and um we're kind of landing on this uh either supporting cancel culture or considering it to be the worst thing in the world (laughs) (laughs) right of course yeah and you know as a a zoomer myself i've i've borne bore witness to a lot of cancellation in my life Mm -hmm. um you know i I often think, you know, I I was probably the last generation to, like, not be born, like, with cell phones, you know? Um, okay. Because, you know, early 2000, 2001. Um, and, you know, I remember, like, the iPhone coming out and, like, that being a whole mm-hmm. big deal. But, you know, seeing how, uh, you know, interconnected things have gotten and the ease with which one one can be canceled, it, it's it's mm-hmm. been pretty wild. Um and, you know, I'm all about accountability, but um, I worry that now, you know, now that kids are doing their growing online, um, mm-hmm. everybody is just going to have this wealth of stuff that could cancel them, hypothetically, depending on, you know, who's mm-hmm. doing the canceling. It's a, it's a wild situation. Yeah, and, you know, I think it really all just boils down to, like, who has the most power in that situation because you can have you know a thousand things in your past that could come out to haunt you but if you're joe biden we have to ignore that um so that's why like i i really want to equate like this whole environment or uh this set of politics as being like a moral panic because um everyone is running around no matter what um you know, your actual politics are just trying not to be on the wrong side of things. Right. Um, But at the same time, if, you know, the ruling class 
looks kindly upon you, you're not going to get canceled. So, you know, I ultimately, it gives people, I think, in the immediacy a lot of power or a feeling of power over their situation, but it really isn't changing anything systematically. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's a fascinating analysis of what that is, you know, um, you mentioned the, you know, the ruling class and how it, there's this environment of not wanting to be on the wrong side of the ruling class and Mm -hmm. the key, like the foremost political event that I think is defined mine in a generation's life is uh september 11th um 2001 Mm -hmm. i was let's see i'm not good at math uh seven months old at the time okay um six seven months old uh so i don't actually remember the attacks happening but i kind of grew up in this in this post 9-11 world um Mm -hmm. and you know i've i i found out uh a year or two ago it's pretty radicalizing fact you know the, the u.s has been at war for my entire life yes you know, i've never been alive during peacetime um but you know i'm curious how how would you examine 9-11 and its aftermath as an example of this kind of moral panic um that's a really good question because um of, co- of course the red scare was also um a red uh a a moral panic. Right. Uh, I mean, there, it was way more than that, but like, you know, so much of what fueled it was, um, confusion, um, pointing fingers and, you know, in, in group, out group dynamic. Um, and then, uh, that, um, we didn't really have that for almost a decade. Like we had the, the, the first Iraq war, which um, I think was probably like the first attempt at uh, trying to like reignite having a global threat like we had uh, during the Red Scare. And, um, you know, George, we famously didn't, you know, whatever, whatever is considered finishing that conflict, we didn't do. Um, So that 9-11, I think, um, I don't think Bush did 9-11, but I do think that the blueprint for how to take advantage of the next crisis, Bush did, and Cheney did, and, you know, their whole uh, rogues gallery did. Um, and that's why there was, no, like, no direct connection between 9-11 and the Iraq War, because, you know, the the blueprint was lying around, and then there was the moral panic. Like, uh, not being – or being a good American – uh, was a real thing at that point. Like people started putting flags everywhere, yellow ribbons at every tree. The American flag on the lapel was not a thing before September 11th, and now it can make or break candidacies, no matter you know, considering where you are. Um, and you know, the I, one one of the things that I remember, I was uh, an undergrad uh, at the time. And uh, one of the things that uh, stuck with me was I, I stepped out and I smoked at the time. Um, and I walked up to this um, uh, this this guy um, who was, uh, I think he was Middle Eastern, and he, like, jumped. Like, I got close to him, and he, like, was freaked out. And I'm like, oh, dude, I just wanted a lighter. And he's like, oh, oh, and he, like, lit my cigarette. And then at that point, I'm like, it's palpable. Like, we're living in a very different world right now, and that sucks. Yeah. And um, it became, you know, it's not that uh, Islamophobia wasn't accepted before, but it was, um, you know, if you pull up YouTube of, like, just regular TV in the early 2000s, like, straight-up anti-Muslim uh, sentiment on the on the evening talk shows, even on sitcoms. Oh, like, yeah. people were openly mocking uh, Western Asians. And, um, you know, a friend of mine uh, who is Syrian, and they're Christian— um, was was getting harassed for it, and you know that yeah, that also kind of comes up with a little bit of internal, uh, you know, moral struggle there. You're like, what do you say to people? Do you say to people, "I'm Christian, leave me alone," yeah. when like they shouldn't be harassing anybody? So yeah, that that was definitely um, one of those very important um, moral panics that changed you know a lot of people. And I, you know, my politics shifted during the Bush years. I was um a radical um at that point from like probably middle school on 
Um, and I became a liberal during the Bush years. I supported Kerry in 2004 um, because I thought this is the coalition we have now, um, which was uh, led by liberals. Um, but then, you know, the, the, the anti-war movement wasn't, but there was a, there was a coalition there that, um, that, you know, disbanded during, uh, the Obama presidency. I see. Yeah. Um, that's, that's such a, it was such a wild event that, you know, obviously I don't remember it and I was, you know, growing up, becoming a person Mm -hmm. during that, that time period. But, um, I remember learning about it. Um, and it, it was like this great tragedy mm-hmm. and there was no sort of political analysis coupled with my education about that, which, mm-hmm. you know, I was five, six, seven, of course, I'm not going to be, you know, I can be reading like from Marx or whatever, you know, but, <laughs> um, I never really considered the implications of, you know, that sort of event and, and us as a nation gearing up for war um, until I was much older. You know, I remember uh, when I, I must have been 10 or 11 when uh, a boy from my hometown who he was 19 at the time was killed in Iraq. Mm. And, you know, I'm 19 now and imagining someone, you know, my age being sent off to a foreign country, you know, to Mm -hmm. further the cause of American imperialism. I mean, that's just, that's just horrifying. You know, I, I think I'm pretty tough as a person, but I'd be scared shitless if I had to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting to me how that kind of crisis fueled the American imperial machine. And Mm -hmm. I always thought, you know, okay, yeah, our soldiers are fighting for our freedom. It's a, it's a necessity that they, go overseas and fight people because those people would would be a threat otherwise um and you know that's a result of moral panic Mm -hmm. and uh have uh have you read the naomi klein's shock doctrine i haven't i need to that's a good one she she lays out there too about how um maximum profit was really reaped in uh during the iraq war um and that was really what it was all about. And having that moral panic around it about, you know, either you're with or with the, with us or you're with the terrorists um, made it so like in polite circles, you weren't having conversations about whether or not we should be there. And uh, everyone had a family member who is overseas or knew someone. And um, the climate was don't don't have debate because it's going to offend people and that, um, you know, I mean, it's the same, same messaging that in every war that like they're over there fighting for our freedom and all that. Um, but it was the first time really in my lifetime, I felt, I really felt it like, you know, you had to be kind of careful around who you're talking about things with, um, because, uh, it become just so, so charged, um, with, uh, you know, having to support the war. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, such a stifling climate that, that just kind of plays right into the hands of the, of that Imperial goal, you know, to, to go to mm-hmm. war. Um, the podcast blowback. Have you listened to, to blowback? I haven't yet. Okay. That's in my queue. It's, it's real good. Um, little free advertising for, for blowback. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I got the trial for stitcher to, to listen to that and then forgot to cancel. So I had to pay for that yeah that, you know they but, know what they're doing yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but it, it's it's a it's a great show worth worth a listen um yeah so another big moral panic we're kind of facing right now um is and we, and we have been for a while but it still kind of persists to this day is the idea of you know sex work and, and human trafficking mm-hmm. and how those are kind of linked um i'm seeing a, a very good shift in the sense that, um, you know, DAs are getting elected, you know, in my hometown, not my hometown, but where I'm living now, Austin, uh, we elected Jose Garza, who's a progressive prosecutor. And, Mm. um, you know, he and many others are running on the decriminalizing sex work, which is awesome. Um, 
but you know that was not a common position for a while and mm-hmm. i feel like uh can you tell me more about you know what what was the climate around talking about sex work and whatnot and that, and that sort of moral panic yeah i feel like um well there were you know there was definitely a moral panic like and and the celebs came out against decriminalization um because they were given like you know uh this narrative by like Nicholas Kristoff and those folks about how um all um predominantly women or all people that are involved in sex work um or all you know all folks that are involved in sex work are being coerced or being trafficked and so what that created was this uh environment where um you had to agree with that majority because I mean, yes, sex trafficking is happening. It's bad, but it is not all sex work. And by creating one size fits all policies, it created a really, a very much more dangerous environment for sex workers. Many of whom relied on the internet um, to advertise themselves and and their work. And uh, what Sesta Fosta did was made it. So any website that hosted that stuff could be federally prosecuted and um it would be uh it was not not worth the risk anymore so those kind of websites shut down and uh from what i understand that led to increased um you know open air sales of sex work and uh working through shady networks and not being out just in places like craigslist and and out in the open uh where things could be safer um with people being more open about it um they were able to uh, better screen their clients they work with um so the moral panic though around it was just that sex work is bad and it all comes from uh from sex trafficking so we need to do absolutely everything to wipe it off the planet and um that meant that there weren't any good policies but like what you're saying like i do think I think Sesta Fosta in some ways was the uh was that was like the big shock that happened that really pushed a lot of um organizing um to to counter that message about sex trafficking. Um so I think that we are kind of in a better place where people are more open to talk about sex work. Unfortunately, it's in the shadow of this uh really awful law that um you know, even though I feel like humans are are kind of opening their eyes more to decriminalization congress people still aren't and they um they're almost always they they kind of operate under their own moral panic 24 7 like they don't want to be seen as being too kind to sex workers um they don't want to be seen as being basically interesting human beings in any way because if you're an interesting human being they they treat you like they treat aoc (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no kidding. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about something like, like, uh, like sex work and human trafficking, um, it, it's just so counterproductive, you know, moral panics, if ostensibly the goal in that, in that sense was to you know protect people from being trafficked. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's intuitive. You'd think, okay, decriminalize it, get out in the open, you know, make people who, come forward about being trafficked not subject to prosecution themselves um Mm -hmm. but you know the power of of that that sort of widespread moral panic as Mm -hmm. it's called is just as i said earlier just stifling you know how do you challenge that that prevailing idea without seeming like a a weirdo yeah that that's a big piece of it too is that you know we're such a puritan country still that just the talk of sex like we shouldn't even be talking about it like sex work we should be talking about it like work and looking at it as a labor issue like that i think would be a better route to eliminating some of the oppressive practices at like strip clubs um and you know websites uh that that provide like cam shows and things like that um, where they you know the performers aren't making a whole lot of money, um, you know they should be able to organize and to you know build uh, collective strength that way. Um, but with all, it's it's really hard with all the shame that's around it. And you know if we look at it as a labor issue, then human trafficking is slavery, 
we can just look at it and just call it what it is. It's it's slavery, and we know that's illegal, and that's we have ways of cracking down on that, which are completely different from policies that are going to, you know, make life safer for people who opt into sex work. Yeah, of course. Um, when it comes to like policy making and whatnot, um, a really interesting thing that we're facing right now with, um, you know, DHS. Um, and like the, you know, the feds in Portland and whatnot. Um, mm. Ken, Ken Klippenstein, the investigative journalist, he, mm-hmm. he made the point that, you know, a lot of the, the big sell for the departments under DHS is like, oh, we're, we're combating human trafficking. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said earlier, it, it's smoke, you know, it's, it's a smoke screen for what those, those, agencies really do um but it just goes to show how you know you can just take these issues and utilize them for your uh political goal without actually confronting the issue you supposedly care about one thing though that does give me hope is i'm seeing the seams rip on the uh the the moral panic around law and order like um a lot of folks kind of more centrist and liberal are really seeing how awful the police are right and how um and and some of them actually see policing as a problem yeah for the first time which is uh really good because you know that was one of those things where even even in like the dsa we'd often have uh like uh graphics of of like you know the working class and there'd be a, a cop in there and you know you know as a left i'm i'm so happy that we're finally saying no to cops and no to cops in our organizations. And hopefully that, that is bridging out further in a, in a permanent way. And the Biden thing kills me though, because I I really felt so much hope over the me too movement. And then when it was, when so much of it was undone to protect him and his candidacy, I'm like, shit, like pride, you know, we, we, we keep getting 10 steps forward and then, nine steps back at least yeah oh my gosh i know you know when it when it came to biden getting the nomination i i remember the climate back in uh you know february i was at a bernie rally in in austin and i was volunteering Mm -hmm. there um and he was speaking marion williamson made a surprise appearance um it was a great time you know coronavirus was just in the back of our minds and everything Mm -hmm. seemed so bright and hopeful uh, and then everything went to shit. Um, yeah. But, you know, for a while, I was like, out of 25 candidates, was it, it was, it was 25 plus candidates. Yeah, the, the with, beginning. Or actually, they, some of them stuck through <laughs> quite some time. Yeah, yeah. And of any shitty, centrist, middle-of-the-road, status quo-upholding capitalist they could have picked... They picked Biden. And I'm like, mm-hmm. for a while, I was like, you know, for the party that supposedly cares about Me Too and holding abusers accountable, like, you could have picked anybody. You could have picked Buttigieg. And mm-hmm. you probably would have got more leftists to vote for him than would vote for Biden. Um, and for a while, I was like, man, this is such a, a contradiction. Like, why? But then I've realized, you know, it, it's not a contradiction. They don't have principles. They're, mm-hmm. They don't care. It's, it's, all, it's all a game. And they just use what they can that's convenient in the moment. It is like the they they it it is just so naked out there now because you, they pick the the oldest, whitest, creepiest of anyone. Not maybe not oldest, but you know he hit all of the things that we're supposed to be shifting away from. Yeah, including you know some of the things they labeled Bernie for for being an old white man. Right. And it's like, Oh, if we're going to have to work, if we're going to have to have an old white man, why is it Biden? Yeah. I mean, we know why it isn't, but there's, there's no real answer for that. Right. And I mean, we even knew he was creepy before, you know, we found out about mm-hmm. the, the more recent stuff with, with Tara Reid and whatnot. Like it was a pretty well-known fact that he, he would like sniff women's hair and like hug little girls who didn't want to be hugged. Like, He's a weirdo from the get-go, and mm-hmm. they just shoved him through the primary and are shoving him through the general, it seems. 
I thought that Harris was going to be the big threat to Bernie initially. Yeah. Because yeah. they were really pumping her up for years. But, um, yeah, she couldn't get over the cop thing. <laughs> yeah, and that was, was even awesome before. To watch. That was even before all these all these protests. Um, mm-hmm. That, I mean, that, that goes to show, like, the tides were already kind of turning back then and setting the stage for these conditions that have been forcing this kind of change. Mm-hmm. Um yeah it's a it's a mess um speaking of you know me too and throwing away political principles uh there's there's this councilman in my hometown um and you know it's it's a town of like two hundred thousand people so it's not like a, a huge thing we're near dallas but um he is like a progressive type um I don't know if he calls himself socialist, but he could be ostensibly perceived as, as such. Like, he's he's all about open carry. He There were a bunch of articles running around about him with, uh, you know, he had a rifle at a protest, and that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, but the worst thing about him is that he's, in all likelihood, an abuser. There's several uh-huh. cases where, um, you know, he, he served time for uh, content warning rape um, mm-hmm. back back when he was 19 or so and he, he, he argues that it was a he was pressured to take a plea deal and he didn't really do it and you know I'm all about um, redemption you know I I, mm-hmm. I support the abolition of policing and prisons and whatnot um, so I don't want to hold it against someone that he was in prison but I also don't want to elevate him to a position of power you know and He's mm-hmm. had incidences since then, um, as recently as 2018. Um, but what sucks is there's people organizing a recall against him for all the wrong reasons. They're they're just racist assholes, and oh, he's uh-huh. he's black, so they're they're like, oh yeah, I mean this guy's is talking about black lives and he's carrying a gun, and I'm like, no no no, that's all cool. Like that's mm-hmm. that's good and cool, but. Um, you know, so it it doesn't seem like anybody's confronting the actual issue here, and it's just creating their own moral panics about this guy um, mm-hmm. that I'm just kind of seeing play out in real time. Of you know, people on the left are you know, all oh, these guys are being racist. We have to defend him, and these people on the right are being racist, and mm-hmm. nobody's actually confronting the the real concern. Nobody's being principled and getting over their own moral panics. Um, it's a uh, it's tough and it seems like it's a condition you know you mentioned we're a pretty puritan country um mm-hmm. it seems like it's in our our blood as a nation to have have these panics on the regular yeah i mean the fact that not i mean i hate to talk about joe biden the fact that he won't uh change his position on decriminalization of cannabis oh yeah because he's still stuck in that whole mindset of like i don't want to sound like the hippies like, you know, he grew up in that generation and he was an anti, you know, the anti-hippie type um, who threatened corn pop with chains and whatnot. Um, God, there's he's the worst. Yeah. No uh, but, uh, yeah, he uh, there's there's nothing about him that speaks to the current moment. <laughs> right. Right. And it's 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 such a DNC move to, mm-hmm. to pick that guy. <laughs> Just, you know, the worst... Po- I mean, he's probably going to win, but just the, the worst, most unlikable, un- unfitting guy for this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's... I For a long time, I didn't think so, but I think he's got a shot, because I, I... The one thing I do keep hearing from people is they, they consider him to be a bridge back to normalcy, whatever that means. Right. When I talk to, especially, like, folks out in the suburbs, they're like, well, we want things to be normal for a while, and like, uh, what does that mean? Normal? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, you just want to not see the problems that were already happening before Trump. That he's mm-hmm. just too much of an idiot to cover up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's rough. Um, so something that I've been confronting lately, as I you know, I'm progressing through college education and whatnot um and meeting more leftists and reading theory and expanding in my understanding of politics and history in the world 
is there's a lot that kids in this country aren't taught in school. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think standard history curriculum really gets a handle on how how awful this country has always kind of been, you know, um, especially if mm-hmm. you're from a more like conservative area and, you know, where they make football coaches be your history teacher and mm-hmm. they're just reading from the textbook of, you know, Pearson's or whatever, uh, like standard approved curriculum. Um, but you're a, a teacher um, and you're mm-hmm. a socialist uh, and you're a socialist history teacher. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I guess I'm wondering, how does that position for you as um, someone who has the opportunity to sort of influence the next generation of kids in a, in, a, in some sense, um, how do you utilize that? And how do you also confront kind of moral panics within mm-hmm. school and your job as an educator? Um, that, these are really good questions. Yeah, so I, I'm throwing a lot so, at you. Take a lot of time if you need. Oh, no worries. Well, my, my philosophy with teaching is give students the tools they need to, you know, understand the world and, you know, be a, an active participant in it. So, like, um, you know, my the Chicago history class that I teach, you know, we focus on, you know, why why are there these power dynamics in Chicago that are so disparate? Why is there so much segregation in Chicago? So we look at redlining and uh school segregation um school funding we look at all of those like kind of causes very early in the year in chicago history um and then we take those themes and like we kind of broaden them through so like instead of starting at the very beginning talking about like the chicago world's fair um i end the the year with that and then we actually understand then at that point like how that made way for gentrification like it was one of the first kind of um kind of shock doctrines that led to uh like um just like uh super development of the city like you know a lot of the things that attractions we still have were built um in that time um and then we talk about like how that neoliberal uh project we don't. I don't really use the word neoliberal in that class, but we talk about how that similar kind of project, um, what is is kind of baked into every big uh, project in Chicago. So we kind of we we. I don't want to be too. It's not like anti uh, the ruling class the way I teach it, but we look at both. Um, you know, the we have like this this beautiful skyline, but then we also have to look at you know what made way for that beautiful skyline. Um, so I really like to teach the contradictions and the tensions mainly um, and to keep the tensions alive to hopefully get some debate and dialectic in class Um, because I try, I don't, um, it's funny because sometimes I do get accused of indoctrination and then I always turn it back on people. I'm like, well, if I give students the tools they need to like write a speech um, organize um, their community and then go to a board meeting and give the speech and have their community stand behind them, um, you know, they're going to use that tool. And if they're a poor black or brown kid in the south side of Chicago, they're going to be advocating for more funding for their schools or better housing and things like that. I'm not telling them to be leftists. These are just young people who are deprived of a lot of things. And when they ha- find their voice, they're going to advocate for themselves. Um, they're not going to become Republicans. It happens every once in a while. I'm not uh, saying that like every one of my students becomes a socialist organizer for the most part. They, um, you know, I, I know I have some students that, that go on to organizing, um, which is always awesome to see. Um, but even if they don't get into that, you know, one of my goals is them just understanding the world and understanding that, um, you know, there are people actively you know, creating these tensions and creating these oppressions. They don't just kind of come out of thin air. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a very important perspective that I feel like a lot of kids don't get, you know? Um, so. It is funny. Like, uh, we had a first year teacher, uh, last year who also taught civics with me and she's like, Oh, is there a textbook? I'm like, 
there is one, but we never use it. And she's like, oh, can I see it? And it was, you know, it was the framers of the Constitution and a big American flag and an eagle on it. And we both just started laughing. We're like, we're never teaching out of this. Yeah, yeah. One time I did give a chapter out of it uh, for subplans and just have a discussion the next day about how boring it was. <laughs> nice, nice. That's good stuff. Um, that's... You know, while while you were talking about that, that made me think of some moral panics have been wrapped around teachers. I mean, right now you hear mm. on like Fox News a lot. There's you know, oh, you know the the liberal leftist teachers are indoctrinating your kids, um, and I'm like, well, they're not indoctrinating me. I didn't get any of that. Um, <laughs> but you know, it also makes me think of uh, California in I think the 70s. There was a, a vote where if uh, if it uh, passed, it would have forced um, queer teachers to be fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big deal, you know, with Anita Bryant and the Save Our Children with, you know, we don't want the the queer teachers to turn, turn your kids gay. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, teachers have a, a unique position to kind of confront moral panics and be the subject of them. Mm-hmm. And that was, yeah, I mean, that was the, one of the huge moral panics around um, the gay liberation movement was that the right wing always wanted to equate LGBTQAA folks with pedophiles and, you know, other, you know, uh, abusers. And, um, you know, that's why it was so hard. It's hard to to believe it now, but like, uh, or actually in some, some parts of the country, it's still not hard to believe, you know, you couldn't even have these conversations um, about, uh, you know, Gay marriage was not, you know, it wasn't like the ultimate form of liberation, but it gave people something to to talk. It gave um, a policy around the debate that was that was so necessary that I think pushed us um, much further. Because um, even just a few years ago, um, you know, there were people just who would say, "I'm not going to talk about homosexuality. I'm just morally, I can't do that." or something and um those people still exist but they seem to have a lot less support mainstream wise at least yeah and that's good um it's uh it's it's a trend we see you know where um just throughout society it's like okay we land on a moral panic we deliberated about it for a while and then kind of fizzles away you know some mm-hmm. people's lives get ruined some people you know lose this and lose that and then we move on to the next one um and, you know, I fear we're making that jump now from, you know, now that gay marriage is settled and we won that, now it's jumping to transgender people and, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, the the scary predators are going to come into the bathroom and, you know, it's, um, it's sad how the ruling class just finds a new out group to, to focus mm-hmm. on and send all the ostracization, uh, ostracization to. And uh, yeah, it was just like everyone. It's all smoke, no fire. There's never been an incident of a trans person abusing a child in a bathroom. Um, All of this is coming from urban myth and things, you know, probably propagated, you know, on on the down low through um, email forward lists and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's wild. Uh, It's a strange country we live in where... You know, we just got to roll with this stuff as as it comes, roll with the punches. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, this conversation can be kind of illuminating uh, on this this issue. You know, um, I know I've I've learned a lot just in these 40, 50 minutes of spent talking. Yeah, to this is fun. Yeah, this has been this has been fantastic. Um, and I hope my listeners get something out of this as well. Um, you are a podcaster yourself. Um, yes, your podcast class time is one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, how, how's that been going with uh, you know pandemic and whatnot? Oh, uh, good. Um, we took a little bit of a break, and um, so I just released an episode today, um, both on uh, the podcast and on video. Of I, I introduced uh, Brett Payne from uh, Street Fight Radio. Oh, to nice. are you familiar with Nakado Avocado? The no, YouTuber? No. Um, well, I introduced him to, to this person who's a, uh, a wild mukbang oh. YouTuber <laughs> who eats massive amounts of food and has like these 
wild reactions and kind of there's like almost a professional wrestling vibe to it too because he gets into these fake fights with the people and <laughs> it's it's like it's trash tv that gets your mind off of how awful things are yeah um so we watched that so that was a fun episode and then um class time we're actually doing a uh, book club around the book racecraft and i had uh, jennifer pan from the new republic come in and speak to the book club um, about racecraft versus this new concept, or this not new concept, but uh, White Fragility, that book that just came out a couple of years ago that's uh, becoming pretty prominent. Um, so we're releasing that as a podcast. Um, and uh, tomorrow I'm actually interviewing Assad Hader, um, and we're going to talk about uh, class reductionism. He wrote a piece for Salon about that. Um, I also want to talk to him about his book. Um, and then Walida Cannon. Um, later in the week is going to t- explain modern monetary theory to me which is a concept i'm kind of understanding awesome awesome well, that sounds great where can uh, where can folks find all this uh well, easiest place is to go to patreon.com slash kenzo shibata which is my name or at kenzo shibata on twitter um where i just you know post all my stuff so yeah i think those are probably the best two places awesome uh you got anything else to plug uh no that's it and then oh uh, yeah just keep keep your uh, eyes out for that um charity stream for the chicago bond fund awesome yeah sounds great um perfect so kenzo thank you so much for coming on the pod oh no worries thanks for having me on